Joshua chapter 1, first nine verses as representative verses. Hear the word of the Lord. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according According to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So far we've looked at what's called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we have been focusing on from or out from. The, the message has been that God is bringing His people out from Egypt. But if you go back to Genesis, we remember that the promise wasn't just to bring them out from, but to bring them into. And so with Joshua, we turn a corner from from to to. Uh, and this completes the promise of God, because He said, I will bring you out from, and I will bring you into. So this is uh, Joshua, Joshua bringing them into the land that God had promised them uh, and promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses. And Joshua was only one of two men who had come out of Egypt and were allowed to enter into the promised land because of their former faithfulness. Now, before we look at the book of Joshua, I think Joshua needs a little bit of of context and needs a little bit of explanation, especially in our day, because Joshua is a very bloody book. It is a book about warfare. It is a book where the whole cities are wiped out. And it's a book over which many people have stumbled. As they read it, they say, how could this happen and how could God command this? How could He allow this? And a number of people will point to the book of Joshua as the reason they don't believe in the God of the Bible because they say, this is not right. And so I think we need to, to take a step back and, and try to address that question because it's a, a good question as we look at this book of warfare. Now, the first thing, I want to mention just four things about this. Um, before we look at the book itself, the first thing is this. It is not clear, to me at least, why we modern people find the warfare in Joshua so appalling. Because we modern people have been the ones who have devised and utilized on each other the most barbaric 
and cruel weapons of war that the world has ever seen. So it's a little strange that we, as modern people, the inventors of mustard gas and napalm and indiscriminate bombing of cities and nuclear and chemical armaments that we have not only developed, but we have used on each other, it's not clear where we get off going back and looking at Joshua and saying, oh, you unenlightened people, you barbarous people. So I think we should take a look at ourselves first before we pass judgment on what was going on in the time of Joshua. Now, having said that, um, we need to recognize that not all warfare is morally equivalent. That not all wars are, uh, are the same level of, of good or evil. And I think all of us intuitively recognize that as well. And we look at different wars in which our country has been involved, and we, and we look at them and we, we say, well, this war was, was really a good cause. This war was to stop atrocities. And so, yes, we took a stand against other countries that were committing atrocities, and even though war in itself is not a good thing, uh, it was a good thing that other nations rose up and put a stop to atrocities. And, of course, our war that we look to uh, probably most and, and justified in our minds is World War II because of the atrocities that the Axis powers were committing and the Allied powers said, no, uh, this is beyond the pale. We will not let you continue to do this. So, having said that, uh, the peoples whom Israel conquered were practicing atrocities. They were practicing abominations for generation after generation. And God tolerated, in His patience, He tolerated them for hundreds of years. Now, uh, way back in Genesis, way back in Genesis chapter 15, when God first told Abraham that He was going to give him the land, uh, look at what He says to him. Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and following. Uh, it's on page 12 if you'd like to follow with me. Then the Lord said to Abram, uh, Genesis 15:13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall... I'm sorry, as for you, you shall go, your fa- go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for, and this is the explanation, for the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Interesting. So he's saying, we're going to wait. I'm going to wait. God is saying, I'm going to wait 400 years while your people are enslaved, my people are enslaved in Egypt, Because the iniquity of the Amorites, the sin of the people in the promised land, is not yet complete. It hasn't gotten to a point yet where I will completely take them out and and put a stop to these atrocities. And then, we saw last week in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, it's on page 170, God said to the Israelites, Do not say in your heart, After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of those nations the Lord is driving out from before you. 
that he may confirm the word that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So you see, this was an act of justice on God's part. And he wasn't saying, you Israelites are better people, but he's saying, I am using you to bring my just judgment on these people who are committing abominations. That's the second point. And the third point um, is, uh, is this, um, that God would do the same thing to the Israelites. You see, He wasn't just... Uh, it wasn't a racial thing. It wasn't a, a thing saying, well, I like this race or, or this nationality better. Because if the Israelites committed the same atrocities, which they eventually would, God said, I will drive you out as well. So this wasn't a, a genocidal sort of thing or a racial thing. It was God's just judgment that he would eventually bring on his own people as well and drive them out of the land if they fell into the same practices. And the final thing is this. The final thing is this, before we get to the book itself. We do not use the sword. We do not take up the sword in God's name anymore. Uh, This was a temporary thing that took place because God was judging those people and using the Israelites to do that. But since the coming of Christ, we do not take up the sword anymore. Now, unfortunately, Christians have taken up the sword in the name of Christ. Uh, And they have shed blood in the name of Christ, but they have no warrant to do that since the coming of Christ. Because we are still engaged in warfare, but the warfare in which we are engaged is not, as Paul says, against flesh and blood. Um, In Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about the warfare in which we're engaged. It's on page 1082. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might. That sounds a lot like what God said to Joshua, doesn't it? He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Then he says, take up the armor of God. And then he describes what the armor of God is. The armor of God uh, are, are things like truth and righteousness and the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and uh, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God and prayer. So yes, we're engaged in warfare and yes, we receive a battle command just like Joshua did but not to take up a physical sword in the name of Christ. If we do that, we have forgotten the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ that has changed everything. And so if somebody says, well, I don't agree with, with uh, people doing what happened in Joshua, we say, well, we don't either anymore because that was a temporary thing that God was doing and now He is doing a new thing and it's worldwide conquest, but it's spiritual conquest, bringing people under the banner of Jesus Christ and bringing them into a peaceful relationship with God through faith in Christ. Okay, introductory uh, that's all introduction, a little longer than my normal introduction, but I think we need to, to, you will hear this objection, I think we need to, to interact with these very good questions that people might have. Now, if we look at the book of Joshua, we find it divided into uh, different sections. Chapters 1 to 5, preparation to enter into the promised land. Chapters 6 to 12, the conquest of the promised land. Chapters 13 to 22, the division of the promised land. And then we have verses, uh, chapters 23 and 24, which is the end of an era when everything comes to a close. So, um, preparations to enter into the promised land. First five chapters. God encouraged Joshua with a summary 
of Deuteronomy. And I just read it, but I'll read it again. Uh, If you were here for Deuteronomy, this will sound very familiar. And the summary statement is this in verse 6 to 8. And if you know anything about Joshua, this is one of the, the most quoted verses of Joshua. But it says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers and to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to it, I'm sorry, from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now he says it here, God says it here to Joshua, but in Deuteronomy, this is a summary of Deuteronomy, he says it to all of us, he says it to all of the people. Do you want to walk in the blessing of God? Do you want to enjoy God to the maximum, and enjoy His benefits to the maximum? Then fill your life with His Word. Meditate on it day and night so that you might walk therein and enjoy the maximum blessings that He has for you. Then Joshua, who was, by the way, a former spy. Do you remember back in Numbers where God sent 12 spies into the land? Joshua was one of them. Now he takes a book out of, uh, or takes a page out of Moses' book and he sends spies into the land as well. They are on the east side, west, I'm sorry, east side of the Jordan River. So they're still not in the promised land yet. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. The first city on the west side of the Jordan River is a walled city called Jericho. So he sends a couple of spies to go to Jericho and to spy out Jericho. And there's the story of Rahab. Now Rahab was, uh, by, by occupation, she was a prostitute. She hid the spies. She uh, sent them out by another way. She protected them, and then later they protected her as well, and she was grafted into the people of God. But that was the, the first city that they spied out, and the first city that they would have to conquer if they were going to uh, take the land. And by the way, if they had lost at that city, all would be lost. The first city, uh, whatever happened there, uh, if they lost at that city, they would easily have gotten wiped out by the people of the land. Now... Um, they had another problem other, uh, in addition to that city. They had a river to cross, the Jordan River, and there were no bridges that they could take these hundreds of thousands of people over, and so they had a, a river to cross. Do you remember what happened the last time that they had a body of water to cross? you remember what happened? Coming out of Egypt, had to cross through the Red Sea. What happened? The waters divided. Guess what? That's what happened here as well. So, so the, the Exodus is punctuated... Uh, and bookended by two crossings of bodies of water that God opens up for them that they might cross through on dry land. And so he opens up the Exodus that way, and he shuts it that way as well. And then they uh, had to do another thing. They had not practiced circumcision, uh, the operation on male, uh, male, usually babies, but they hadn't done this uh, in all the time they had been in the Exodus. And so... They, they cross the river. Now they're in enemy territory. Not a time when you want to do a surgery on all of your adult males, right? But they did. They, they did the surgery and they had to take time to heal. And they called the city Gilgal because in circumcision you roll away part of the flesh and they're, they're rolling away their past. It's like Christian baptism, and in fact the New Testament points to baptism as the fulfillment of circumcision, in which we wash away the past and we begin a new life in Christ. And so they did that. 
And then there was one more thing that needed to happen, needed to happen before the conquest itself began, and that was in chapter 5. So they're, they're on uh, enemy territory, the men are healing from their, uh, their circumcision, and Jericho is there before them. And then if you look at chapter 5, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Does that sound familiar? That conversation? That had happened with Moses as well. Do you remember in the desert? uh, When Moses encountered the burning bush, what was the instruction? Take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. But this conversation is a little bit different. Uh, The same instruction, because it's holy ground, he's encountering the Lord. But here, Joshua has a question for this commander, and then this commander throws it back to him. You see, Joshua wanted to know, are you on our side, or are you on the side of our enemies? And the answer was, no, that's not the right question. The question is, are you on my side? You see, the commander wasn't going to take sides. Rather, he was recruiting those who would take his side. And and you see, that's always a temptation, isn't it? Uh, Trying to get the Lord on our side to do our agenda, whatever that agenda might be, political or whatever, social or whatever that agenda might be, and saying, "Uh, Lord, are you going to be on my side? But he turns the question around and says, no, I'm the commander. So the question for you is, are you on my side? And Joshua recognized who he was and appropriately fell down in worship saying, Yes, Lord, I am on your side. Now, that's the preparation to enter the promised land. Okay, now we're in the the conquest section, chapters 6 to 12. And the instructions for taking Jericho, a walled city, were very unusual. Um, The main weapon they were going to use were trumpets. And uh, they were to walk around the city once for seven days, And on the last day, they were to walk around the city seven times, and they were to blow the trumpets, and the city would fall. And strange instructions, but if that were to take place, who could take credit for the falling of the walls? The trumpeters? No. It it, it had to be obvious who was making this happen. And so the instructions were, were making it very clear that it was the Lord who was fighting the battle. And the Israelites were just getting to to participate in the Lord's fighting of this battle. But there were instructions before they went into Jericho. And the instructions were, don't take any of the booty. Don't take any of the loot. None of it. Devote it all to destruction. Um, And lo and behold, what they did, they took the city, they destroyed the city, and they saved Rahab and her family because she had been faithful to them. Um, But there was one man... There was one man who saw something, some shiny metal objects among, among the loot. And he took it for himself and he buried it under his tent. The next city was Ai. And that's how it's spelled, Ai. And uh, it was a little city, no big deal. After taking Jericho, I mean, Ai wouldn't be any big deal. And so Joshua just sent a few of the men and they got beaten back and some of them got killed. 
And so now, this is, this is terrible. They just got repulsed by a little city. What's going to happen to them in enemy territory? They had one victory, but now they're exposed because they just got pushed back by one little city. What are the other cities, the city-states of the land, going to do? Gang up on them and push them back across the Jordan. And they fall before the Lord and say, Why did you do this, Lord? And the Lord said, Get up. Somebody has sinned in the camp. That's why this happened. I didn't do this. You did this. You see, if you don't obey me, I don't fight for you. You see, you're to be on my side. I'm not on your side. And Achan's sin was exposed and he was eradicated from the camp and then they were able to take the city of Ai. But these two cities became paradigm cities for the rest of Joshua. And that's where we're spending a little bit of time on these. These became test case cities. If you do what the Lord says, then the Lord will do what He says. He will give the city into your hands if you obey Him, if you trust in Him. If you disobey Him, don't expect Him to do uh, what He said He would do because it's conditional on whether you will do the warfare as He said you should do the warfare. So it's clear that it's not your might, it's clear that it is the Lord's power to do it. So, after that, they had, um, they had uh, a ceremony. And that ceremony, do you remember back in Deuteronomy? Moses had said this, when you get into the land, some of you, six of you tribes go up on Mount Ebal, six of you tribes go up on Mount Gerizim, and in the middle we have the priests and we have the law read, and the blessings are on one, and the cursings are on the other, and so they reaffirmed, they reaffirmed their faith in God's Word. Then we had three successful military campaigns. We're going to go over these very quickly. Three successful campaigns. Chapter 10, uh, victory over five kings in the central part of, of, uh, of the Promised Land. Uh, chapter 10, the second part of chapter 10, victory over the southern kings. Chapter 11, victory over the northern kings. So, uh, three very successful campaigns. And let's go to, let's go to chapter 12. Let's go to chapter 12 to see how this ends up. So they have this, the central campaign, the southern campaign, the northern campaign. They beat all these kings, 31 kings in all. 31 kings in all. Because they did what the Lord had instructed them to do, and He fought on their behalf. And in chapter 12, we have a list of all those kings. And uh, I'm not going to go through the whole list, but it's impressive. And, and you see how uh, in chapter 12, the first six verses, it talks about the two kings that, uh, that Moses defeated. And then it begins with Joshua's time. Uh, verse 7, These are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad and the valley of Lebanon, etc., etc. And then uh, it starts to name them. Verse 9, the king of Jericho, 1. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, 1. The king of Jerusalem, 1. The king of Hebron, 1. The king of Jarmuth, 1. The king of Lachish, 1. The king of Eglon, 1. And it keeps going on and on, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1. And it gets down to verse 23. The king of Dor and Naphoth Dor, 1. The king of Goim and Galilee, 1. The king of Tizra, 1. In all, 31 kings. Amazing. Amazing generalship on uh, Joshua's part, but even more amazing than that, that this newly formed army of ex-slaves would be able to conquer this land. What's the explanation for that? There's only one explanation for that. It was the commander of the armies of the Lord of Hosts who was doing it. 
So, looks like pretty simple, right? You go in, you conquer the central part, you conquer the northern part, you conquer the southern part, it's all done, right? Well, look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. Uh Uh-oh, what happened? Well, they did do the central part, they did do the southern part, they did do the northern part, but they didn't go all the way out to all the land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Still much territory to conquer. And so what Joshua did was he allotted land to all the tribes, and they had to go out and conquer the rest of it. And so that's what we have in chapters 13 to 22, the allotment of the land. First of all, Caleb got his allotment. Well, two and a half tribes had already gotten their allotment on the east side of the Jordan. Then Caleb got his allotment. And then all the different tribes, nine and a half more tribes, got their allotment. And then, last of all, Joshua received his allotment. And then the Levites didn't get territories. They got cities because, you remember, they were to be dispersed among all the tribes in order to minister the Word of God in all the tribes. And that brings us to the end. That brings us to the end of an era in chapters 23 and 24. And this sounds very much like what happened at the end of Deuteronomy, because it's a farewell. You remember Deuteronomy, the whole book, are are, are, uh, Moses' last words? Well, here we have Joshua's last words. And if you look at verse 20, or chapter 23, it says, A long time afterward, a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. There's the key. It is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess the land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, does this sound familiar? Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord your God has driven out before you the great and strong nations. As for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day, etc. And so he's he's reviewing what the Lord has done. He's calling them once again to follow the Lord in all that they do. Now, he warned them against mixing with other nations, and he said, if you do that, then God will drive you out, just like he drove them out. And then he gathered them one last time, chapter 24. Chapter 24, it says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and heads, judges, officials, etc. They presented themselves. Joshua said to the people, and here what he did is he gave a review. If you want to review a very short review of the history of the people, go to this. He goes all the way back to Abraham, how God had called him out of the land, and how God had uh, had been uh, continued His promise to Isaac and to Jacob, and uh, how He had sent Moses, and how He had brought them out of Egypt. It's all right here. We have a, a summary of, of all the history that we've seen in just a few verses. And then, after He gives this historical 
prologue, this historical introduction to all that God has done, he says to them that they should follow the Lord. But then he recognizes that they may not want to. They may not want to. Uh, Look at verse 13. After talking about all the Lord has done, verses 1 to 12, then he says, um, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built. You dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So that's his final word. But then he says, maybe you don't want to. Maybe you'll decide you like the gods of the land here. And he said, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, uh, the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So what's he saying? You choose today. You do whatever you want. I'm telling you to serve the Lord. I'm telling you what will happen if you serve the Lord. I'm telling you what will happen if you don't serve the Lord. But it's up to you, and you choose this day. But then he says, no matter what you do, I'm decided. As for me and for my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, this may look like a desperate attempt to uh, pull some application for Mother's Day out of this uh, book of warfare for Joshua, right? (laughs) But uh, this is a question for those of us who are heads of households. Will we make this kind of a stand? You see, he drew a line in the sand. And he says, you all, you hundreds of thousands, you choose this day what you will do. You choose this day whom you will serve. But I'm decided. My mind is made up. As for me and all those for whom I am responsible, I am declaring this day that we will serve the Lord. So fathers, mothers... Heads of households, what's your choice? The line's in the sand. What will you say? No matter what people do, no matter what the masses of uh, professing Christians do, I will order my life according to what is in this book. I will order my family's priorities according to what is in this book. I will follow the Lord even if I'm the only one who does it. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people after he threw down the gauntlet, drew the line in the sand, said, no, of course, we're going to follow the Lord. Verses 16 and following, it says, Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us up and our fathers from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in the sight and preserved us all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out all these peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Sounds great, doesn't it? It looks like a setup now, because then Joshua says to them in verse 19, you can't do it. You can't do it. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. What just happened here? This is, this is a repeat of what we saw last week, isn't it? Moses, when he was about to die, he said, come and we'll renew the covenant and I'm calling you one final time before I die to serve the Lord and to serve Him only. And then he says, but I'm pretty sure you won't do it. Because if you've rebelled, even while I'm alive, what will you do after I'm gone? 
And Joshua does a similar thing, but it, it almost looks like he sets them up as he said, serve the Lord. But if you don't want to, okay, don't. But I'm going to serve the Lord. And they respond, no, we're with you. We're going to serve, serve the Lord. Absolutely. And he says, you can't do it. You can't do it. But they go on insisting. They go on in insisting and they say, no, we will serve the Lord. And he says, okay, you are witnesses. And he sets up uh, some stones as a, a large stone. He said, this stone is a witness. And they say, we're witnesses. We said we would serve the Lord. And we will not turn back. Now, the, uh, the good news is they did. They did serve the Lord as long as Joshua was alive and as long as the next generation was alive. Come back next week. We'll see what the people did after those generations were passed. And then the story ends. The story ends with um, three, uh, three vignettes at the very end. Joshua dies. He's 110 years old and he's buried. And then, one more thing. You remember the bones of Joseph? Did you wonder what happened to those bones? Do you remember the end of Genesis? Joseph said, when you go up from Egypt, when the Lord brings you up from Egypt, don't leave my bones here. And then we go to Exodus and we find out they took the bones with him. Now we are about 70 years later. They have been carrying these bones around for 70 years, and they finally bury these bones. Okay? Uh, that's in verses 32, uh, verse 32. And then we have one final thing at the end, uh, verse 33. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. Aaron, Moses' brother. Aaron, the high priest. Eliezer, the next high priest. And they buried him at Gibeah in the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. And so what's, what are, why these three very quick? Uh, Joshua dies. They bury Joseph's bones. And now Eliezer dies because it's emphasizing the passing of the torch. It's emphasizing the passing of the baton. It's emphasizing that that, that generation had died. The generation that had seen what the Lord had done uh, had passed on. And now Joseph's bones are put to rest. The exodus is over. The people are in the land. And now the question is what will happen next? So you're going out of here. This is a lot of information, right? You're going out of here and somebody says, what's Joshua about? Well, Joshua is about this. God is faithful to keep all his promises to his people. That's the message of Joshua. But the question of Joshua is whether his people will be faithful to keep all of his commandments. So that's the, that's the question mark. The message is clear. God is faithful. The question is, will the people be faithful? Now, there is there's a tension that runs through Joshua. And this is the tension. The tension is this. Is it complete or is it not complete? Because um, it looks like, boom, 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 they conquer all the kingdoms, they take the land, they have peace on all sides, and then in the very next verse, it says they had a lot more territory to take. What's going on here? Did they take all the land or did they not take all the land? Uh, critical scholars look at this and say, oh, some clumsy editor put these contradictory reports together. Um, because in one verse it says they took the land, God fulfilled all his promises. Then the next verse it says they didn't take all the land and they had lots more land to take. Is it complete or isn't it complete? Well, um, that's the point. It's not a clumsy editor here. This is the point of this book. That's the question of this book. Is it complete or is it not complete? Is it done or is it not done? And... Um, the this haunting question goes all through the Old Testament, by the way. This is not just part of Joshua. Uh, is it complete or is it not complete? 
And we'll go on, if God gives us strength and breath to do this, we'll go on and and look at the rest of the history of Israel. And this is a haunting question. Uh, Is the conquest complete? Is it not complete? Uh, Is is Israel established or is it not established? Uh, Is the land secure? Is it not secure? Uh, Are the people holy or the people not holy? Has everything been done or has it not been done? And this is a haunting question that keeps driving us forward more and more and more uh, in the Old Testament. And the final answer is, no, it's not complete because it's not designed to be complete. It's not the final chapter of the story. What is the final chapter of the story? Well, we read it in our New Testament reading. The final chapter of the story is when the next Joshua comes. We already read this, but I'll read it again in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua, same word as Jesus, so here he's playing on, on the, the namesake, for if Jesus, Joshua, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so he's saying, no, Joshua did not give them the final rest that they were looking for and the final rest that they need. And we keep looking through all of the Old Testament for that final rest, the one who would give us final rest. And guess what? We don't find him. He doesn't come until Joshua's namesake comes. And he is the one who gives us final rest. How do we know he gives us final rest? Because he himself finished the job and he himself rested. That's how Hebrews starts. It says, when he had made purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down. He sat down and he's the first one that's able to sit down in the Bible. He's the first one who can say, I have completed it all. It is finished. It is done. The salvation of the people is complete. The redemption of all who believe in me is complete. The rest is won. The victory is won. The battle is won. The war is won. The kingdom of God is going forth. And I am sitting down because it is done. You see, that's why there's this tension in Joshua. That's why there's tension in the Old Testament because it's pointing us forward to the second Joshua. It's pointing us forward to Jesus, the one who did sit down after he completed his work. And then the call is, the call is the same as the call of Joshua. Are you on his side? He's the commander. He's the one who's completed it. And the the call is not to try to get him to be on our side. The invitation, the gracious invitation is for us to be on his so that we might share in His victory, so that we might share in His rest, so that we might share in His reign over all the nations until His kingdom comes and His will be completely done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us join the fight. Let us join that battle because the commander goes forth and he conquers, but he conquers by bringing people into His reign and establishing peace between them and God because He has made peace and sat down at the right hand of God. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this book of Joshua. Uh, Troubles us in some ways. Intrigues us in others. Calls us to commitment. Asks us on whose side we are. Draws the line in the sand and calls us to say on which side of that line we are. And it also points us forward to the greater Joshua, to Jesus, the one who finally completed the work, the one who finally was able to sit down after conquering over sin and death and hell and judgment on our behalf. And we would sit with Him, we would reign with Him, we would join with Him 
And so we once again look to Him in faith. And we pray, O God, that we would heed those words to Joshua and to the people and to all of us, that we would continue persevering in faith and ordering our lives according to Your Word, that we might walk in the blessing that You have for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.